This podcast is proudly brought to you by Sky Racing and Ingress, number one in its field. A remarkable riding career came to an end at Doombin on July 13, 2019, when Jeff Lloyd donned the silks for the last time. Imagine how many sets of colours this man has worn in a career embracing 41 years, 5,500 winners, 94 Group 1s and hundreds of stakes races. His talents and achievements have never been more lauded than they have since he made Queensland his home in 2012. He won over 600 races in the Sunshine State, including four Brisbane and two Queensland premierships. In winning the 2017-18 Brisbane title at almost 57, he became the oldest jockey to ever win a Metropolitan Premiership. These achievements are all the more remarkable when you reflect on the ischemic stroke he suffered in 2013. Not only was his life in the balance initially, but as his rehabilitation began, his doctors respectfully advised him that he should forget about returning to the saddle. Well, he did return to the saddle a year later, and to use a tied old cliché, the rest is history. Every racing journalist and commentator wanted a piece of him during his farewell week, and I thought it best to let the dust settle before pinning him down for yet another interview. Got him online on the podcast. Gov, it's a delight to talk to you, and congratulations on all you've achieved. Thank you, John. Thanks so much. Well, you and Nicola have been to Thailand for the wedding of another brilliant young jockey, Chad Schofield. How did that go? Yeah, it was a brilliant time to share this great uh, moment for, for Chad and his wife, Anna. Um, yeah, we got there a week before the wedding, and as, as all weddings go, he had all his best men and, and all his mates there, and it was a it was good build-up to the day. They mm. all had a lot of drink and a lot of fun, mm. and the wedding went off beautifully. Beautiful uh, set. Um, couldn't have asked for more, you know, the way it went. And, uh, yeah, it was great to be there. I hope you had a couple of beers yourself. You don't have to worry about the killer jewels anymore. Yeah, yeah I don't. I, I've never been one to drink too much, but at least I didn't have to worry about my weight. And uh, yeah. yes, it, it is. But I don't think too many of the jocks worried about their weight over that week. <laughs> mm. Well, Chad is a son of fellow jockey Glyn Schofield and his wife Tiffany. And Tiffany just happens to be your wife's sister. Yes, that's correct. Well, you had seven rides on that last day, Jeff, but no winners, which was the only negative on an otherwise perfect day. Yeah, I I thought it'd be tough to have a winner. I I sort of approached my last meeting, obviously doing my own rides. Um, You know, looking back, I don't know if I I should have pushed harder for better rides, but I, I really felt I owed it to the people that had meant a lot in my Queensland four years that had helped me a lot. Mm. Um, Chris Munch, Toby, uh, obviously. And, uh, yeah, I rode for the people that meant something to me. And I thought if I have a winner for them, it'll mean more than just a winner. So uh, it didn't happen, but I, I had a great day. Um, horses ran where they probably should have run. I don't think I rode yeah. anything bad. So that it, it still was a great day. 
Yeah. I imagine the emotion would have been bubbling away under the surface all day long. Um, yes, yes, it was mixed. You know, I wasn't too sure. You know, the jockeys were, um, we've got a great lot of jockeys in the jockey room and all of them were, like, making jokes of it, um, good to get rid of you sort of thing and <laughs> wishing wishing me well at the same time. And they all made, I heard after the comments they made and they were all from the heart, which I thought was just great that, yeah. I'd managed to touch so many people while I've been here, and uh, I, it was sad to say goodbye to everybody. But, but Sony Racing, um, I was there yesterday for their day, and I, and I caught up with them all again. So mm. yeah, I'm still being in touch. Well, you've had an extraordinary career, Jeff Lloyd, and it's hard to know where to start in interviewing you. But let's go over some old ground. You and your two sisters were born in England. Yes, we were. Um, my my mom, my dad was a boxer. My mom was just a housewife, and we were born very um, in a caravan, actually, just on a little pr- property. My mm-hmm. my elder sister and I, and we then moved to a little house in in a place called Epping, so in a council house where we lived till we left till we emigrated. So mm-hmm. it was very humble beginnings, um, but good memories. There was no racing background to be found in your family anywhere. But your dad did enjoy a little bet on the horses and you were watching races on television with him from a very early age. Yeah, my dad wanted to be a jockey but never never got the opportunity to even um, adventure that far. Um, so he, he was always watching racing on a, t- on a black and white TV in England on a Saturday and I'd be, I'd be with him every Saturday watching and he'd take a walk down to the betting shop I wasn't allowed out in, but I'd peep through the windows and watch the racing. And once he'd put his bets on, we'd go back home and uh, we'd, uh, we'd watch his horses. And I'd always be on the back of the couch with a stick I'd found from the garden. And uh, he'd let me whop the couch with a whip. And, <laughs> and, and, and that was, that, yeah, that was my highlight of, of the week watching. And, you know, obviously I was, even then I can feel it now. E- even as I'm talking, I can feel the. What I used to feel at that young age, um, watching their their top horses, Najinsky and mm. Mill Reef, all winning the, the Derby, and how much you know it meant to them all. And mm. yeah, you know, I always dreamt just one day. I just hope you know. So it was always there. You were enthralled by the legend of Lester Piggott. The great jockey was in his prime in the nineteen sixties, nineteen seventies, winning classic races with unbelievable consistency. I think it's fair to say that he's had more impact on your life than anybody else. Yeah, he has in a, in a, in a way where because he was such an idol when I was young and, and he, his style stood out from all the rest around him. He had a unique style in those days. Um, they used to call him Bottoms Up because his mm. bum was always high in the saddle and he was a long, tall jockey. And, mm. and I always, re, I always um, even until... I retired. Whenever I felt I wasn't riding well or I just something wasn't right, mm. I'd always pop the videos up of him and then the recent uh, uh, little bit of Pat Adrian, Joe Marrera. Who, mm. But he was a person I always went back to and then I, I used to slow down his videos and see why he was so great and you just put that feeling of mm. where you're going wrong, how, how easy you made it look, you know. So, mm-hmm. yeah, he, he, made, he, he was just a great jockey, yeah. You were in his company many times over the years. Did you ever get to tell him what an inspiration he'd been to you? I did. Um, 
I was in the Oregon the first time I met him in in South Africa, and uh, I even went to his hotel room where he was um, where he was living, and didn't have the guts to knock on the door, <laughs> but but I just stood there and um, just thought, can't believe there's a pigus inside this room, but I never <laughs> he never knew I did it, and, no, and I never told him until later. Yeah. Um, but in Mauritius, he was invited out there as a guest. Uh, guest of honor and um we sat together i made sure i sat with him that night and um then i i let him know exactly what i knew and yeah. i rattled his brain and asked him about royal academy what happened in the straight so just before they straightened i, I watched the rerun and noticed his horse just lost momentum and mm-hmm. so yeah it was great just picking his brain for a couple of hours that night he wasn't the easiest bloke in the world to have a conversation with jeff because he was quite deaf yeah it I th- he definitely is, but I, th- I think he it's a bit chosen as well. He obviously is, but I think he picks to what he wants to hear, and if he oh. doesn't want to hear it, because I must say there was a lot of noise that night, and, and we, we never hesitated once. <laughs> we got through it, but I was shouting, obviously. and uh, yeah. yeah, but obviously um, he did have a – the way he spoke and all that, you, you knew there was something there, yeah. Yeah, he, he's got the married man syndrome of selective hearing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, yeah, 100%. you were only 14. Well, firstly, what took your family to South Africa in the first place? Did Dad have a job transfer? He did, yeah. he. he we never had money, and, and uh, I, I think he just was looking for us as children for to try and Better, give us a better chance in life than what all my cousins have had. Um, uh, just hard working nine to five jobs, and uh, I think he, thank goodness for him, he had the, the guts to move with nothing. I think he had in those days he, we had a hundred pound. That's all we had mm. when we emigrated, and he went through a, a job transfer, electronic engineer for Plessy. And then we moved around in South Africa for for the first two, three years. We just kept moving to try and find somewhere which was sort of reasonable. So, yeah, it was thanks to him that we got there. You were only 14 when you joined the world-famous South African Jockeys Academy, regarded by many to be the best of its type in the world. Pretty intimidating walking into that place at 14. Yeah, I knew nothing about it. I, I only got to South Africa at 11 and never knew there was even horse racing. I thought that was just gone out the window. My career's like what I dreamt from a young age. Me and my dad never spoke about it again when we emigrated, it was, which was amazing. I never brought it up because mm. I could just see the, the problems and troubles that he was having trying to keep us all happy. So I never sort of put another pressure on him. So we never spoke about it. And on, on weekends, I used to work in the garden for pocket money with him and we had a radio on, and and a July pop that their big race popped up one day, and uh, I realised that there's racing, and and he was excited as I was that there was a chance for me, and he said, look, I'll go to work tomorrow and ask some questions, and he come back and he said, yeah, there's a South African Jockey Academy you, you, we've got to try and get you into, and you go at 14, so he phoned the Jockey Club and and started making inquiries about how to get in there. Um, but I, up till the day I, he drove down, he, he took us, we had a bad, he had a bad car and we took us, it was only a, should have been a seven hour drive, but couldn't get there in one day. So we took two <laughs> days to get there, yeah. had to sleep over, get the engine a rest. And, uh, <laughs> we, we got there and, and 
I honestly, I was so naive to what was actually happening. We were at Gravel Racecourse, and I was in it already because it was the first time I'd stepped on a racecourse. And um, then all these little men, which were obviously ex-jockeys, were stewards interviewing us. And Mm. there was about 30 of us that went, and 18 got accepted, and I was one. So I thought, that's it. I'm now a jockey. Not realizing. I thought I'd go back home with my dad and and, um, and stay at home and go. I don't know what I expected, but – Next thing they said, well, say goodbye to your parents. You're going to the academy and you won't see them for two years unless they come and visit you. And that was it. I hadn't really even said goodbye to my mom because I thought I was going to see her again. So off I went to this academy. Yeah. But it was 18 months of discipline and hard slog. John, it it honestly is, and and that's why I I believe it's a great academy, is that you're young, you're 14, and – we're all we're very, very strict with their weight, and so we are all built jockeys. Most of us that go in, and and uh, you just get thrown into like an army camp, and you are the first year apprentice, and it goes for five years. So you've got all these eighteen, seventeen, sixteen, fifteen year old boys telling you you you've got to do all the errands and you've got to do this. So you're just the skibby for a year, and mm. it just toughens you up so much. You don't you don't rest for a minute for for your first year it's just go 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 and if you don't satisfy or do what you're supposed to do there's consequences so mm. you live to grow you learn to grow up very quickly and protect yourself you know like mm. just work hard and 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 it'll all be okay you know but no time for for laziness mm. yeah but, i mean it's a life-changing thing isn't it what an enormous education for the life ahead yeah, yeah, it, it is. It's a great introduction, and, and I think the toughness of it is um, what gets you through the bad times in racing. Or you always think where you come from, and mm. I, just, I think, like, yeah, my humble beginnings and the toughness to get where I got and the toughness of the academy just put me in good stead, mm. not realising at the time, but later on in life when things don't go well, as I say, in racing, there's a lot of downs, and that just sort of gets you through it. You came out of that academy a well-trained, well-educated, aspiring jockey and arrangements were finally made for you to become indentured to a trainer called Brian de Villiers. Now, you couldn't yeah. wait to get the, the trainer's premiership list out to see where <laughs> Mr de Villiers was placed on that list to find yeah. out what sort of a place you were going to. Yes, and a funny thing happened. <laughs> yeah, they um, yeah they gave us the training and they said, oh, you're going to Brian de Villiers. So as you say, I went to the trainer's log and I looked on and uh, there was a trainer called Nick Viviers mm. who was fourth on the premiership in in the province where the state where I was going to. They mm. From Durban sent me to Johannesburg, which is now Tauteng. Mm. And uh, I was excited. I thought, God, I hadn't had a winner in Durban. I'd been riding for six months, no winners, one of the – battlers that were moving up there and uh, I thought well they'd give me a good boss anyway that's good they must think I'm not that bad <laughs> and, and, and off I went to work the next morning and, I, and I'm running around trying to find uh, who the trainer is and eventually I go to this Mr. Vivius and, and said I'm your new apprentice he said I haven't got one said, what are you talking about yeah. I said no I'm Jeff Loy he said no you got the wrong trainer you you must be go your your man's over there Mr De Villiers, not Mr Vivier's and Good off man. I went there and beautiful man but I could see and he had a small string and then I went back home afterwards uh, 
and looked on it and he, he wasn't on the trainer's log. No, no. <laughs> it, but it ended up a, a blessing in disguise because he was just the kind of – I rode him for three years. We never had a hiccup, had a lot of winners, and, and he gave me all the opportunities and uh, I fed off from him. I, I branched out to a lot of other trainers, but he was, he was brilliant to me and, uh, mm. yeah, I couldn't have wished for more. Your first winning ride was on a filly called Panache. Now, it's 40 years ago, but I'll bet you remember that race stride for stride. I do. It was my first, I thought, chance of having a, that I was on a on a horse at four to one, uh, second favourite, and I, I've never ridden a horse near the, near the favourite. For eight months I've been riding, it was always put on bad horses and just and I just took everything as you know to try and learn a bit more and I got to the start I'll never forget and and the favorite it was called Simon I got kicked and it's funny the competitor straight away I didn't feel any sorrow for the horse I just thought that's great scratch him (laughs) (laughs) the horse ran Simon but um yeah my horse went on and, and won but very easily, Panache, she won by four and a half lengths, and uh, it was a great thrill. I'd waited eight months for it, you know. Because of the impact Lester Piggott and other English jockeys had had on you, you quickly developed a style which was very English and in complete contrast to the South African style. It was. It took me a long time because as an academy, they, they insist you ride the way they they train you to ride um and it's very it was very old-fashioned and i remember the the international races when um they used to have the race called the bull brand international and they invited jockeys like fernando toro lester piggott yves saint martin and all these great riders and you see them and think god that's what you sh-. that i always looked at them and thought that's what i want to look like but mm-hmm. the south african way was very different um and they had a very unique way of riding but it wasn't the style i am now it was short rain, more like the olden days, shorter rain, longer irons, foot, mm. whole foot in the iron. Yep. And I wanted to change, but I didn't know how to. And we never had uh, fo- video footage and all that in those days. So I only really created that a bit later in, in my career um, when I joined a trainer but uh, that made uh, helped me change. But in the beginning, I was frustrated because although I was leading apprentice, I, was, I wasn't knowing, wasn't riding the way I, I pictured myself to ride and I didn't know how to change. Everything about you at that time was frightfully British and the nickname Gov quickly evolved. What did you get through those years, Gov or Governor? I was always Governor. It came from a manager later on. Um, yeah, he called my nickname was Squire and then he changed to Gov, both English sayings, Squire and Gov. But yeah. it was uh, one of my managers um, that put that on to me a bit later in my career. Yeah. The use of the nickname Gov must have diminished since you've been in Australia. You wouldn't get it too often now, would you? I do. It's grown. It, it, nobody knew in the beginning, but at the end, like most jockeys in the jockey room, especially in Brisbane, all call me Gov now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like, I like it. We'll pause for a moment uh, for this break on our podcast. Back in just a few seconds. A catalogue of almost 200 horses will be offered for sale at the final Inglis auction of the year, the 2019 Ready to Race sale at Riverside Stables on Tuesday, October 22nd. All horses of two-year-olds, broken in and prepared by experienced horse people and presented for sale, literally ready to race. 
each horse will undertake a breeze-up session, which is a gallop ending in a 200-metre sprint. Each breeze-up will be recorded, which will enable prospective buyers to get a gauge on a horse's action, size and potential ability. There'll be an additional breeze-up session this year at Eagle Farm in Brisbane on Monday, September the 23rd, and other sessions will be held at Cranbourne, September the 13th, Warwick Farm, September 20th, Taupo in New Zealand, September the 23rd, with a second session at Warwick Farm on Friday, October the 18th. The strength and quality of the English ready-to-race sale catalogue is unparalleled in Australasia. Special guest is Jeff Lloyd, whose final day of race riding was at Doomben recently, July 13. Well, what a career you had in South Africa. The only South African jockey to ever top 4,000 winners, more than 80 Group 1s, two trainers, I think Jeff contributed to that figure. David Payne, who had a very strong team at the time, and a man called Ricky Maingard was very impactive in your career. Yes, when I fish, finished my apprenticeship, um, I was offered a couple of uh, decent jobs. Uh, the one was a trainer, Michael Roberts, who was leading trainer in uh, one of the leading trainers in in South Africa at the time, and and the other was Ricky Maingard, who was only been trained for about three years and was making the impact in in training. And he approached me and. I went to his stables and he, um, he was very professional and, and and it was the first time I'd ever heard of a trainer working with times with horses and that. They don't do that in South Africa, but this mm. this trainer did. And I just I was only going to be second jockey. He had a, a leading rider, a stable jockey, and he said, but I'm looking for a young a young boy to come along. Mm. Uh, and, and I took up the offer as second jock. I knew my determination and, and I'd put in so much work uh, every day I would go and I thought eventually I'm going to push the stable jock out of the way and I'll, I was confident. <laughs> I'd, and he said to me at the time, he said, you know, in the next year or two, maybe you'll be my stable jock if things go well. And it took me about four months and I'd got rid of the other guy and uh, I was stable jock. <laughs> you know, you achieved these extraordinary figures in South Africa against some ferocious opposition. When you started off, it was the great Michael Roberts. You've mentioned his name already. But as the years progressed, you were competing against men like Felix Kutsi, Basil Marcus, Douglas White, sensational riders, each and every one of them. Yeah, I, I, I look back at it and I think how, how tough those years were because Michael Roberts was uh, went on to win the, the English champion, Premiership and he, he was sort of coming towards the end of South Africa when I, when I became champion jockey. Mm. And then, as you say, it, it was an entourage of great jockeys coming through. It was Felix and Basil, and I'd competed with them. And the next six or seven years, myself and Felix shared the premierships. Basil never got to win one and yet went to Hong Kong and won, I think, numerous premierships. Felix then went to Hong Kong. I'd stayed in South Africa, and then the next swarm came through. It was Pierre Stratham, Douglas White. Anthony Delpeche. So, as I was getting older, the, the the young stock were coming through in in waves, and I felt, I, you know, I found it very challenging to keep because you'd fly three, four times a week to different meetings uh, to win the title. You had to travel three, four times a week and get up for work every day. 
and I was just competing with all these new kids coming along and they just made you up your game and improve all the time and it was great. It was it was tough, but it was great. Probably twelve years of solid travelling and trying to win premierships. You know, perhaps your greatest single achievement was a seasonal record of three hundred and thirteen winners, breaking the previous record held by Michael Roberts. Astonishing yeah. performance: three hundred and thirteen in a single season. Yeah, it, it took a lot of work. I, I, as I say, I was probably riding five days a week and riding work every day, um, sometimes getting home at one in the morning, catching two flights to get home, catching a midnight flight back, getting up, um, getting home at one, getting up at 3.30, back to work. So I was riding for David Payne at the time, and then I'd, I'd work from four o'clock till nine o'clock, five hours work, and then catch the half past ten flight back to somewhere else, another hour flight. So. It was continual work, and, and David Payne was a tough master in those days. He wouldn't. He said, "I don't mind you going for the title as long as you're at work." So I had to make sure wherever I rode, I had to fly back whatever the time the flight was to make sure I was back at work in the morning. And this went on, as I say, for about twelve, thirteen years. So it was, it was tough, and uh, but it it made it just made you who you become. You know, to yep. to become the best, you had to put in that, that type of work. You've earned your stripes. I've heard my stripes in loads. Yeah. <laughs> Jeff, when you first landed in Australia, you said you had never, up until that point in time, ridden a better horse than Wolf Power, a big, yeah. strong grey who was a slow maturer, hit mm-hmm. his straps as a three-year-old, and he finished up winning seven Group 1s. He loved the mile trip, didn't he? Yeah, he he actually won twelve. He won twelve group ones. I oh, won seven. Yeah. I won seven on him. He won twelve. I won I won seven on him. But yeah, he was imposing. He was he was big and strong, uh, but a great uh, like a great presence. And uh, he he was the best I've ridden up till today. Still, um, mm-hmm. till the end of my career, I've never ridden anything like him with the speed he had. And and he was just a machine. And I wish he came later in my career. I would have probably. Enjoyed it more, but it mm. was a. I was very young, and there was a lot of pressure involved with it. But I seemed to cope w- w- with it very well um, in my young age. Um, I remember Ricky saying to me one day, "Take this serious." I was yawning, but mm. before the race. But it was actually a, when I, I found on later in life that when I yawned, it was actually um, a, it was a nervous thing. <laughs> it was, but he thought I was half asleep. He said, yeah. "Wake up!" It's a group one. Yeah, but yeah. We had a lot of luck. He was, he was a great horse, John. Yeah. So you were a compulsive yawner, were you? <laughs> I found when I when I overthought things and and things got to me, I I, I had a habit of yawning, and I, I often yawned <laughs> in the parade ring. It was terrible. <laughs> Goodness me! Yeah. So he'd he'd have been a handy ride in a Doncaster or an Epsom over the Randwick Mile, wouldn't he? Oh, I, I wish he, he – unfortunately, we weren't allowed to travel horses and, and go through the quarantine procedures at that era, mm. and he never got to travel. But, uh, I, I, you know, it's hard to uh, – Michael Roberts rode him, and he went to England and rode great horses like him, Toto, the one group ones, ran in the arc, mm. and he, he put him on the same sort of – level as that. He said him Toto was a bit better, but Wolf Powers, Ricky always said, was lengths better with me on. He had some infinity with me. He used to – so I would love to have, have competed overseas and, and seen what he can – unfortunately, he never did. Nope. 
You had a wonderful day at a place called Kenilworth in Cape Town not long before you came to Australia. You rode six winners on the day, Jeff, including <laughs> three group ones. No trouble at all. <laughs> yeah, I was riding for a man called Mike Bass, who was a legend trainer, a most wonderful man, and uh, he asked me if I would come and ride through their carnival. It's like a three-month carnival in Cape Town, and I was living in Durban. Mm. So I, I went down the road for him, and he had this great horse, Pocket Power, who was still um, – he was a bit like Wolf Power, low, late maturing. This was the first year he really put it together, and he went on to win three Mets and three Queen's Plates consecutive mm. after that. So um, he was the main horse of the day, being the JV Met, who is um, – you can sort of compare it to the Cox Plate of, of uh, not the Melbourne Cup, which would be like their July, but mm. it was a, a great race and he won that. And then I, I rode two very good horses in Sun Classic and JPEG that both went on to win Group 1s in Dubai uh, the following season. So there were three really good horses that I got attached to and very lucky to ride. And, yeah, picked up another three on the day, so it was a, it was a great day, yeah. Now, that big race you're talking about, the J&B Met, M-E-T, Met standing for Metropolitan, is a 2,000 metres race, a yeah. huge event in South Africa. Is it now called the July Handicap? Is that the same race? No, the July Handicap is run in Durban, which is the, uh-huh. the premier event. That's like the Melbourne Cup when you ask any young jockey what race you want to win, mm. it would be the July. But as prestigious and as a, as an occasion for a day, like the overseas people that come all over to see the best racing, they all go to the JB Met. It's like, uh, it's it's just another it's, it's world class meeting. So yeah, two different races. Well, that J and B Met you're talking about, yeah, you won it five times. It's been a great race to me. Um, yeah, I've always had a lot of luck in it. It's, it's. I think myself and Felix could see equal the record. We both won it five times. Um, we both would kept pushing to try and break each other to be the better, and he, he retired, and now I have. So we've we've drawn it five all. <laughs> yeah. You made several trips away from South Africa. You rode in Hong Kong, Great Britain, Singapore, Macau, Germany, and Mauritius. Now, when the opportunity came to go to Mauritius, you didn't even want to go to the place, but you finished up riding more winners there than any jockey before or since. Yeah, I'd had an experiment when I was younger and I rode there for the trainer I went for afterwards, Philip Henry, and a great trainer, but I, I didn't enjoy it. I was on my own and I didn't really enjoy it that much. It's one day racing a week and I was coming off I went for a break because, of, as I said to you earlier, the, the travelling I was doing in South Africa, I was get, I'd was had enough and I went there. But I didn't enjoy it and never went back. And got to a stage later in my career where I was in the same boat again. I was thinking of retiring and I'd had enough. I was tired. And Nicola convinced me to, to go there and give it a bash. And I said, babe, I went there once before and it's not me. It's all about it's illegal that you work with the stable. It's not about uh, winning races. It's about making sure the stable back the horses that win, and that's how you keep your job. And I was never one to get involved in betting and all that. So it wasn't really my cup of tea, and I'd never sort of – I just always want to win premierships. That's what I was about. Anyway, I went there for three months thinking, well, let me just – I'm so, so over racing in South Africa. Let me go. And I was with my family this time, and so – 
I went, my, my children were the one was still in school, so Nicola was coming back and forth. But I actually, uh, I'd grown up and matured a lot since I was there earlier and I understood how it all worked. And um, myself and Philip Henry just went on to break all records and, and made it four years that I would probably look back and think, well, probably in my best four years, close to being my best four years in racing, what we achieved in the records we broke. And, and I'm so thankful that I did it. Yeah, we made great, great. The owners that uh, were in the yard have turned out to be friends of ours for life. You know? mm. Well, Jeff, that's the end of part one of our special interview, and we've just scratched the surface. We'll be back for part two shortly with Jeff Lloyd. The stallion representation at the English Ready to Race sale on October the 22nd is a who's who of the breeding industry. Better than ready, Nakoni, Brazen Bow, Not a Single Doubt, Deep Field, Rubik, Done Deal, and Shooting to Win. And we've just scratched the surface. Add to that Hinchinbrook, So You Think, Holy Roman Emperor, Spirit of Boom, I Am Invincible, Starcraft, Medagliadoro, Tavistock, More Than Ready, Written Tycoon, No Nay Never, and Zoostar. Inglis again team up with Racing New South Wales by presenting the sale three days after the Everest. The timing will ensure the attention of world buyers who'll be focused on Sydney at Everest time. October 22nd is the date for the Inglis Ready to Race sale at Riverside. <laughs>